look. He looks great. Okay. Perfect. He looks perfect. Oh, yeah. Fresh Habib and this is Our American Stories and we talk about everything here on this show from the arts to music from sports to history and everything in between and your stories too. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do and give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Genius wrote poet Charles Baudelaire is only childhood recalled at will. Few creative artists' lives and works have given more credence to that notion than Maurice Sendak, who was, in the words of the New York Times, widely considered to be the most important children's book artist of the 20th century. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of author and illustrator Maurice Sendak. Philosopher Gaston Bachelard once remarked that each childhood is a nightlight in the bedroom of memories. In Marie Sendak's case, it was the catalyst for more than 100 illustrated children's books that have sold more than 30 million copies in the United States alone. Some titles include The Little Bear Books, Pierre, Chicken Soup with Rice, Where the Wild Things Are, and In the Night Kitchen. Here's Maurice Sendak at his home in Connecticut in 2008. I'm Maurice Sendak. We are now sitting in my barn. It's where I come and work when I want it to be very quiet. There's no radio here. There's no TV. There's nothing here. Just me and Herman, the shepherd, the German shepherd, who says nothing. He doesn't critique my work, doesn't cluck his tongue. When he has to take a leak, he just tells you, you know, straight out. Maurice Sendak was the third and youngest child born into a Jewish family on June 10th, 1928, in Brooklyn, New York. I was not intended. It was an accident. And my father would say how he'd go to the drugstore and he'd buy everything on the shelf. He even bought a little ladder. And he made my mother stand. This is true. He made her stand and he forced these toxic things down her so she would abort me. And then she would slip and fall off the ladder, and if the toxic things didn't work, the fall would work. Well, it worked in making me a completely creeped-up kid. <laughs> How'd you find that out? They told me. They told you? They, they didn't tried tell to me out of malice. This was, you got to see, these were things were not, like in the movies, were cruel. These were factual things. We could not afford you. <laughs> Is it something they tell you often? Very often. To make me, I don't know why they, I don't know why they did, but it was more a good story. <laughs> it's a story. Yeah, I mean, after a while, they got used to me, like I was going to be there. There's no easy way to get rid of me. And then my father would talk about watching me get bored. He said, "You were the happiest baby I ever saw." The other kids didn't. You came out almost laughing. And then he wrote me once and said, "I'll never forget." those early days when I would come in in the dark room in the crib and you'd just be laughing all by yourself like a little bell. 
like a little bell ringing. Oh, wow, wow, what a start I had. What a good beginning, what a hopeful sign that was. What did they do, break the bell? Maurice's sister, Natalie, was nine, and his brother, Jack, was five when he was born. Until he was about six, Maurice was a very sick child and spent most of his time in his room watching the world through his window. The window became my movie camera, my television set, he said. He would illustrate what he saw through the window, and his brother, Jack, would write the stories. Both of Maurice's parents were Polish immigrants and had many relatives still living in Poland during the rise of Hitler and his Nazi party. They managed to rescue a few to the United States, but in 1941, on the morning of his bar mitzvah, which is a special ceremony for Jewish boys when they turn 13, Maurice learned every one of his relatives back in Poland had been killed by the Nazis. In the days after the war ended, Maurice found himself a job in Manhattan as an artist with a company that created displays for storefronts. He was so good that he quickly earned himself a promotion. But his new co-workers' dissatisfaction with their jobs caused Maurice to quit, and he moved back in with his family in Brooklyn, picking up where he left off, spending his time staring out the window, sketching. He became particularly interested in a little girl named Rosie. With his window open, he could hear her talking to other children. She would make up games and stories and bully them into playing along. Once, he heard her gleefully describing her own grandmother's death in great detail until the grandmother herself appeared on the steps. Another time, she described a fight between her parents as if she were a radio announcer. She was always the center of attention, but... As Maurice said, save the other children from their worst enemy, boredom. Years later, Rosie would become his favorite character, the heroine of his 1960 book, The Sign on Rosie's Door. I didn't have a lot of friends. I mostly observed children. I'd sit at my window and I'd draw them, even when I was a child. And I would tell their stories. As the stories floated up to the window, I would write what their stories were. Today, Rosie decided to wear her long red dress. I filled gallons of sketchbooks with Rosie stories and other kids' stories. And I kept a journal. It was very bad luck. Everybody who saw my work, you all use the same word, like, it's European. Go look at American children's books. They see, you see they have cute upturned noses and a little puff of blonde hair in the front. And I was thinking, I never knew a kid that looked like that. Never. They all had squashed heads and thumby, lumpy bodies. (laughs) That summer in 1948, Maurice's brother Jack was also out of work and living at home. Together, the brothers came up with an idea to make money. They created boxes with tiny wooden figures that moved and acted out scenes from fairy tales. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Maurice Sendak. Here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we last left off with two unemployed Sendak brothers, Maurice and Jack, returning to their parents' Brooklyn home and spending the summer of 1948 making toys. Here's Greg Hengler. Here's Maurice in 1966. Speaking of toys, I have some here, which, uh, which were made by my brother and myself in 1948. My brother is a mechanical genius and put them together. And these are little fairy tales, which I'm sure you're all very well acquainted with. This is Little Red Riding Hood. It has a lever which, when pulled out, causes Little Red Riding Hood to collapse in mortal terror, the wolf to rear his hideous head above the blanket. And when pushed back again, the world is back to normalcy. She's now standing expectantly, all ready to go through the same routine the rest of eternity. These toys are a family affair. My brother did the mechanics on them. I did the carving on them. And my sister uh, made the blanket over the wolf's bed or grandma's bed. Uh, we spent the whole summer, summer of 1948, making these toys until my father was appalled at having three grown children spending the summer making toys in the house. So we were all dumped out of the house to earn a living. They took them to the most famous toy store in the world, F.A.O. Schwartz in Manhattan. The buyer there loved their toys, but they were much too complicated to be mass-produced and sold. Still, the buyer was so impressed that he offered Maurice a job creating window displays. Maurice excelled and in his off time would hang out in the toy store's book section, where he became friends with the woman in charge of buying books. One day, Harper and Brothers book editor Ursula Nordstrom, the woman responsible for the books of authors Laura Ingalls Wilder, E.B. White, and Shel Silverstein, was expected to visit F.A.O. Schwartz. Maurice's drawings were spread out all over the book department. Maurice said it was like putting a huge hook in the water and waiting for a fish to be caught. Maurice caught his fish. Ursula Nordstrom saw Maurice's drawings and the next day offered him a job illustrating a book. They became lifelong friends. That's her, by the way. Her name is Ursula Nordstrom. She made me who I am. She gave me a book every year. She kept me working. I mean, can you imagine mentorship from a publishing house? She intended that I should be an important illustrator. She knew I could be. And bad habits. I never went to art school. I drew in a clumsy fashion. But she could see beneath that. Over the next five years, Maurice developed his own style. He wanted to add something new. The best illustrated books are the books where the text does one thing and the pictures say something just a little off-center of the language. So, they're both doing something. The most boring books are where the pictures are restating the text, he said in an interview. After Rosie, he wrote The Nutshell Library, a set of four tiny books in a box that included chicken soup with rice and Pierre. By 1963, Maurice had written seven books and illustrated more than 40. Five of the books he illustrated had won the coveted Caldecott Honor Medals. At this point, all his books were illustrated in only two or three colors because full-color printing was very expensive. But now, Maurice felt ready to do his first full-color book. Where the wild things are. But before he began drawing, 
He wanted to be sure the words were absolutely perfect. The final story has only 338 words, but he wrestled over every one of them. Here's Maurice in 1985. Well, The Wild Things was the big challenge in terms of it was going to be my first picture book. And I was very feeling imperiled about doing this book because full color book, picture book form. I'd love the picture book form, but I hadn't done it yet. I'd illustrated other people's picture books, but I hadn't done my own. So it had to be a significant work and only that it had to come thoroughly out of myself. I mean, it had to be a subject that was passionately close to my heart. Um, so what was passionately close to my heart was a kid and a kid doing something and whatever that something was is was what the book was going to be about uh it was called where the wild horses are for a very long time until i discovered horrifyingly that i couldn't draw horses so i had to change the title i changed the title various times to things that i could draw and finally the best thing was things because that could be anything and so my drawing ability wouldn't be challenged by anybody and then what do the things look like? Well, I went back into my head as to who were monsters in my life. Well, they were all my uncles and aunts. Bloodshot eyes and big, huge noses and bad teeth. And they would grab you by the cheek and pummel you and say all the conventional, banal things adults say, like how cute you are and you look so good we could eat you up. And knowing them, they probably could and would. The real problem in that book was the writing of the book and how difficult the writing of the book was. Why would a child turn a page? A child isn't polite. I mean, adults will uh, conscientiously read a book they dislike because they feel they should. Children don't feel any such compulsion. If they hate the first two pages, swammo against the wall, that's the end of the book. They don't care if it's won 18 Caldecott Awards, right? Okay, so you've got to catch them. You've got to catch them in a kind of rhythmic pattern, in a kind of syncopation that makes them turn that page. The night Max wore his wolf suit, and, and, and it builds, and it builds, and you trap them. I mean, they can't get out of the book. The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another, his mother called him wild thing and Max said I'll eat you up so he was sent to bed without eating anything it was published to a lot of noise which I'll skip I don't think that's very interesting uh, criticism and rages and carryings on that this would frighten children well I knew it wouldn't because it didn't frighten me <laughs> And I trusted myself in my own instinct, and it didn't frighten children. And if it did frighten some children, well, okay, perhaps it had to. Perhaps, I mean, why would any one book be good for all children? That's silly. I mean, no grown-up book is good for all people, so we mustn't assume that even a book that wins a Caldecott is appropriate for every child reading it. And Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. Then all around, from far away across the world, he smelled good things to eat. So he gave up being king of where the wild things are. But the wild things cried, Oh, please don't go. We'll eat you up. We love you so. 
And Max said, no. The wild things roared their terrible roars. And gnashed their terrible teeth. And rolled their terrible eyes. And showed their terrible claws. But Max stepped into his private boat and waved goodbye. And sailed back over a year. And in and out of weeks. And through a day. And into the night of his very own room. Where he found his supper waiting for him. And it was still hot. Where the Wild Things Are helped change picture books forever. Before it came out, most children's books only talked about nice feelings. After Where the Wild Things Are was released, people started to realize that it was good for a picture book to deal with other feelings like anger and fear. One little boy sent him a fan letter and Marie sent back an original drawing of a wild thing. But soon after, Maurice got a letter from the boy's mother Jim loved your card so much he ate it, the mother wrote. Maurice always said this was one of the best compliments he ever received. And when we come back, more on the life of Maurice Sendak. It was my favorite children's book, hands down, and I brought it to my little girl, Reagan. And by the way, I was never afraid of those monsters. I thought they were funny and goofy. And I love food, and I had a good family and a good home, and I couldn't wait for the smell of soup and a... And a good meal, too. Love the book. Love this story. More on the life of Maury Sendak here on Our American Stories. Continue with the life of Maurice Sendak, author of Where the Wild Things Are. And we heard the story behind that epic children's book. Let's continue with his next children's book. Here's Maurice. Um, then after Wild Things, the next picture book in the Night Kitchen was 1970. The reason it took the form of a comic book was because I loved comic books when I was a child. I didn't have children's books. I didn't even know there were children's books until I went to school and we had to sit in the auditorium and hear Pinocchio read to us and Winnie the Pooh read to us. I hated them because I didn't like my teachers and I didn't like being told stories where I had to have my hands clasped in my lap. Anyway, Night Kitchen was going to be a comic book and that was that. In the Night Kitchen was based on Maurice's memory as an 11-year-old with his older sister Natalie. Here's Maurice in 2008. 
1939 World's Fair. I was screaming to be taken. I had to go with an older person. And she had a new boyfriend. And somehow she talked to me to accept the idea that they would take me along. Very vexing, very vexing. And I was the seventh heaven. I just loved it. And we stopped at the Sunshine Bakers, little fat bakers. And they're all standing in tears on white platforms. That whole place was so like a 1930s movie, white, white, Carol Lombard, white. And all these little midgets came out, little tubby guys with little black mustaches. And the aroma of fresh baking came out of the building. They're probably pumping it out into the air. And I just stood there breathing the smell of bread. And I love the smell of baking bread. And I was just waving back. <laughs> and, and they dumped me while I was in this trance. My sister and her boyfriend ducked out. And I turned around. And within three minutes, I was crying. And uh, they took me to the police station, where there were about 150 kids all crying, <laughs> all dumped. <laughs> And they put me in a police car. We dropped off a couple of kids. And happily, when we got to my street, I was the only one left in the car. And they asked us to please put the siren on. Please put the siren on. <laughs> they put the siren on. And I could see coming up, my mother had told everybody. So everybody in the neighborhood had their windows up. All the mothers were leaning out on pillows to watch. And the kids were pointing to me in the car. And when I got out of the car, there was two tall cops on either side of me. And they walked me up the stairs to the apartment, and I, there was, in the background was, was, was my sister, like, like that. And I pointed, I said, she did this to me. She got rid of me. And my father turned and whack, 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 and beat her up right in front. And I thought, there will never be another day as good as this as long as I live. <laughs> Here's Maurice making one more point on In the Night Kitchen. And it was going to be simple. It was going to look like Windsor McKay a little bit. It was going to look like Mickey Mouse a little bit. It was going to look like everybody I loved. And it was going to tell a story that obsessed me, which is a story about food, which is a story about why those little creatures of the 1939 World's Fair, those sunshine bakers with their advertisement that says, uh, we cook while you sleep, why did they do that? Why didn't they wait till I was up? I mean, why did everything good happen when children went to bed? So this was going to be a book about a kid who gets up at night, hears what's going on, and investigates. It just feels wonderful because it has all the energy and zest that a Mickey Mouse cartoon had for me. And the irresistible little boy hero from In the Night Kitchen is named Mickey, after his favorite cartoon character, Mickey Mouse. Here's actor James Gandolfini, best known for his role as Tony Soprano, the mafia boss in HBO's television series, The Sopranos. Good evening. Uh, my name is James Gandolfini. I have the pleasure today to read The Night Kitchen by Morris Sendak. Did you ever hear of Mickey? How he heard a racket in the night and shouted, Quiet down there! And fell through the dark 
out of his clothes, past the moon and his mama and papa sleeping tight into the light of the night kitchen where the bakers who bake till the dawn so we can have the cake in the morn. Mix Mickey in the batter chanting milk in the batter, milk in the batter, stir it, scrape it, make it, bake it. And they put that batter up to bake a delicious Mickey cake. But right in the middle of the steaming and the making and the smelling and the baking, Mickey poked through and said, I'm not the milk, and the milk's not me, I'm Mickey. So he skipped from the oven into bread dough, all ready to rise in the night kitchen. He kneaded and punched it and pounded and pulled till it looked okay. Then Mickey and Doe was just on his way. And then the bakers ran up with a measuring cup, howling, milk, milk, milk for the morning cake. What's all the fuss? I'm Mickey the pilot. I get milk the Mickey way. And he grabbed the cup as he flew up and up and up and over the top of the Milky Way in the night kitchen. Mickey the Milkman dived down to the bottom, singing, I'm in the milk and the milk's in me. God bless milk and God bless me. Then he swam to the top, pouring milk from his cup into batter below. So the bakers, they mixed it and beat it and baked it. Milk in the batter, milk in the batter. We bake cake and nothing's the matter. Now Mickey in the night kitchen cried, cock-a-doodle-doo, and slid down the side straight into bed, cake-free and dried. And that's why, thanks to Mickey, we have cake every morning. In 1967, Maurice suffered a serious heart attack. He was only 39 years old. He began to think he needed to live someplace calmer than New York City. Eventually, he settled into a farmhouse in the Connecticut countryside, For the next 40 years, Maurice stayed home and worked. In 1981, Maurice published Outside Over There. Here's Maurice. So I want to tell you, if I may, about Outside Over There and how a real-life situation, which was extremely traumatic and very, very painful as a very young child, is then turned into art more than 50 years later. And that was when I was about two years old. Lindbergh, Colonel Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped. And it paralyzed the world. Handsome, tall, American pilot marries daughter of the Mexican ambassador. And then the baby gets kidnapped. And it gets kidnapped from a house that's called Hopewell, which is a brilliant irony and it gets kidnapped right under the noses of everybody. And when we come back, more on the story of Maurice Sendak. We're going to hear more about the impact that Lindbergh kidnapping case had not just on him, but so much of America. And again, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Send the link to friends. If it's the kind of storytelling you think the world needs to hear more of, In this age of clatter and noise and debate, 
Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, send the link to friends, and support the sponsors of this show, too. Maurice Sendak's story, here on Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Maurice Sendak. We left off with him describing how his newest entry, the latest entry, children's book, was outside over there, and how it was shaped by the sensational Charles Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. Outside over there has been described by Sendak as part of a type of children's book trilogy based on psychological development from In the Night Kitchen, Toddler, to Where the Wild Things Are, preschool to outside over there pre-adolescent let's continue with maurice they were sitting downstairs husband and wife they heard a noise they put it to the march wind it turned out that what it really was was that somebody had put a very rude crude ladder from the ground to the baby's bedroom which was on the second floor took the baby out and climbed down the ladder, but had not accounted for the extra weight on the ladder. So the ladder broke, and the baby fell down and broke his head. Nobody knew this a long time after. So then he took the baby in panic and ran or drove, I don't remember which, for a few miles and dumped it in the woods, not very far away from the house. Okay, that was it. Now, I was shopping with my mother. And we were shopping and we walked past the newsstand. This was about two or three months later or maybe more. And I looked at the newsstand and it said, I couldn't read, but I remember the word Lindbergh. It said, Lindbergh baby found dead. And an big arrow pointing down to something. Because a corpse had been exposed for about three months. I saw it. And I went crazy. And I told everybody I'd seen the picture. And finally, it got to be the scandal of the family that I had gone nuts. Everyone said there was no such picture. Stop talking about it. But it was always in my head, always in my head, that now I would die. There was no question about it. Because if the rich Gentile baby couldn't make it, then how was I going to fare? Years later, In Richfield, where I now live, a man writes a book exonerating the man who was accused of having killed the baby, the kidnapper, whose name was Rudolf Hauptmann. And of all things, this man appears in the Richfield Library. So there's only two people there, me and a woman. And every time he said something, I'd correct him, because I knew this case. I knew this case by heart. I had every book written on the case, every photograph that you could take out of a magazine, everything. 
And so he kept staring at me. And finally, he was done, and he came over and said, hey, you really know a lot. I said, yeah, well, I spent a lot of my life up on this story. And he said, let's go have some coffee. I said, sure, because I was curious to talk to him. And he gave me a copy of his book. And uh, he said, so tell me, tell me why. I told him the story. And he said, and you really believed as a two-year-old that you saw that picture. He, th he threw the napkin over and gave me a pen. He said, draw it. Draw what you remember. So I wrote out what it said. And then I said, then there was something here. And it could be a baby. It could be a boy. I can almost see a profile. I can almost see his nose. And he said, you saw it. And I'm going to show it to you right now. And he had a briefcase. Do you know where my heart was? And he looked through his briefcase and he pulled out this picture. And there I was seeing it for the second time in my life. And it was exactly, it was a replica. I remembered it exactly. Even for the head being in profile. It was the first issue of the Daily News. And when the Colonel Lindbergh saw it, he threatened to sue them. So on the second issue in the afternoon, it was gone. So just a lucky few like me had seen it. And that laid down the basis of a lifetime. You wonder what children see. I mean, the life of the child, what they see and what they hear and what they don't discuss with you or choose not to discuss. The baby looks a certain way all through the book, but there's one picture in the book that is a portrait of Charles Lindbergh Jr. Here. There's a copy of the Lindbergh baby. This book is about my sister, that's her, taking care of me. The hardship of it and the doubleness of it, meaning she wanted to take care of me, and she wanted me to get kidnapped and die all at the same time. My obsession with death, which a lot of my friends laugh at, because I'm, I'm always on it, comes from the Lindbergh baby. And the idea that you could die as a child is an infamous insight for a child, infamous. Who else saw it as they passed? Lots of children on the street. Did it affect them all? And what was that? An accidental occasion of no consequence at all, not to the world. But it certainly invested me in children forever. When Maurice was a small child, a picture of his dead grandfather hung over his bed. One day, his mother came in to find him trying to climb into the picture. He had a high fever and was speaking in Yiddish. His grandfather had spoken in Yiddish, but little Maurice didn't know how to speak the language. His mother thought her father's ghost was trying to lure her son back into the spirit world. To stop him, she tore the picture into little pieces. Years later, Maurice found them. He took the pieces to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where someone spent months putting them back together. From then on, the pitcher hung over Maurice's bed. Someday, he told people, I'm going to go through the pitcher. On May 8th, 2012, at 83 years of age, he did.
did some very good books, which mostly is an isolationist form of life, doing books, doing pictures, and is the only true happiness I've ever, ever enjoyed in my life. It's sublime. To just go into another room and make pictures. It's magic time, where all your weaknesses of character and old blemishes of personality and whatever else torments you fades away. It just doesn't matter. You're doing the one thing you want to do, and you do it well, and you know you do it well, and uh, you're happy. The whole promise is to do the work, sitting down at the drawing table, turning on the radio. And I think what a transcendent life this is, that I'm doing everything I want to do. In that moment, I feel like I'm a lucky man. I'm trying very hard to concentrate on what is here, what I can see, what I can smell, what I can feel, making that the important business of life. Just looking out the window, the colors that I see, reading Charles Dickens at night for an hour, little rituals I have of listening to Mozart. I'm learning how not to take myself so seriously. That what I'm working on, what I'd like to work on, it's, it's not earth-shakingly important anymore. I am not earth-shakingly important. So what am I saying? I'm just clearing the decks for a simple death. You're done with your work. You're done with your life. And your life was your work. I think what I've offered was different, but not because I drew better than anybody or wrote better than anybody, but because I was more honest than anybody. And in the discussion of children and the lives of children and the fantasies of children and the language of children, I said anything I wanted because I don't believe in children. I don't believe in childhood. I don't believe that this is demarcation. Like, you must have told them that. You must tell them that. You tell them anything you want. Just tell them if it's true. If it's true, you tell them. I have adult thoughts in my head, experiences, but I'm never gonna talk about them. I'm never gonna write about them. Why is my needle stuck in childhood? I don't know why. I don't know. I guess that's where my heart is. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a remarkable story. Great job as always, Greg. I'm saying about kids, the life they see and hear and what they discuss and choose not to discuss. That false demarcation between childhood and adulthood. He broke it, he shattered it, changed the world as we know it. By the way, Where the Wild Things is ranked by the USA Today as a top five children's book of all time. And if you hear, want to hear another terrific story about a children's book writer, Shel Silverstein, the hour we did on him was just superb. The Giving Tree, he wrote that. He also wrote A, a Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash. 
Shel Silverstein. You can find that at ouramericannetwork.org. The story of Maurice Sendak, the story of childhood, straight through adulthood. He never let go of being young and seeing the world through that prism. His story here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show about this great country and all week long we're telling the well the greatest story ever told and that is the founding of our country and the signing of the most important document relating and regarding self-governance in the history of mankind the Constitution and as always this entire week is brought to us by the Stetson Family Office who dedicate a large part of their family resources to educating this country on the importance of the Constitution and driving constitutional literacy. And you can learn more at www.constitutioncurriculum.org. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. And right now, we want to take you back in time to right after 9-11 into a little town called Philadelphia and a historian named David McCullough. Here he is talking about the lessons of history. And one of the lessons of history is that nothing happened in the past. No one lived in the past. They lived in the present. It was their present, not ours. Very, very important because they don't know how things are going to come out any more than we know how things are going to come out. Washington, Franklin, James Madison, Hamilton, they didn't walk around and say, isn't this fascinating, living in the past? Aren't we peculiar? Aren't we picturesque in our funny clothes? (laughs) They are living in the moment, just exactly the way we are. And they are imperfect human beings. That's redundant. We human beings are imperfect. And history is human. It's about people. We, the people. The Constitution begins. Here's McCullough talking about adversity and the remarkable nature of the effort that made and created the Constitution and our country. Some people have the capacity to see adversity as opportunity. Adversity is often extremely difficult and sometimes tragic and sometimes um, Heartbreaking. But adversity can also be an opportunity to change things, to improve, to pioneer, to build. And then there's the very real and very pertinent lesson of history concerning this subject of this morning. And that is that America is a combined effort. Very little of consequence is ever accomplished alone. 
Very little of, con of consequence is ever accomplished alone. One person may get a lot of credit or all the credit, but never is it just one person. And this combined effort, many heads and many hands, as James Madison said, is the, is the, is the, is the reason why the Constitution happened and the reason why our country happened. The Revolutionary War was a combined effort. All that preceded the Revolutionary War, and the Revolutionary War, please understand, did not begin with the Declaration of Independence. It began long before that. And these steps along the way, which seem like the, uh, the gateways to so much, were not necessarily seen as such at that time. And then there's the very real and very pertinent lesson of history concerning this subject of this morning. And that is that America is a combined effort. Very little of consequence is ever accomplished alone. Very little of, con of consequence is ever accomplished alone. One person may get a lot of credit or all the credit, but never is it just one person. And this combined effort, many heads and many hands, as James Madison said, is the, is, the, is, the, is the reason why the Constitution happened and the reason why our country happened. The Revolutionary War was a combined effort. All that preceded the Revolutionary War, and the Revolutionary War, please understand, did not begin with the Declaration of Independence. It began long before that. And these steps along the way, which seem like the, uh, the gateways to so much, were not necessarily seen as such at that time. And the cast of characters assembled in Philadelphia in 1787 were remarkable. Here's McCullough. Five of them uh, are worth noting. Many all of them are worth noting. But James Madison, who probably worked harder, very quiet, small man, Poor health, very intelligent, and very dedicated. Uh, Alexander Hamilton from New York, who was a uh, spectacular talker, a stimulating uh, prodigy of a mind, uh, charming, uh, charismatic. Uh, ben Franklin, the wise old man of the, of the, of the scene, of the play, if you will, uh, who doesn't, doesn't say an awful lot during this session, but whose presence, like Washington's, is immensely important. Governor Morris, who was tall, handsome, talked more than anybody uh, from Pennsylvania, another very important figure. They're meeting in Philadelphia in secret, in, in the same room where the Declaration of Independence was worked out and signed. Many of you, I hope, have been there. You've seen it. It's not a very large room. It's not a vast, impressive gathering place. And, and its importance to our story as a country, to who we are and what we stand for, could not be greater. Imagine these two immensely important documents, both of which are, of course, here, where we are now, were created there. And you're listening to one of America's great historians, one of America's great storytellers, telling the greatest story ever told, at least as it relates to governance and self-governance, 
the story of the American Constitution, the story of America, here on Our American Stories, and as always, the Constitution Week is brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. Go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. Constitutional literacy, folks. Play these podcasts. Listen again and again each year. Celebrate our nation's birth with your family, with friends. This is Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the storytelling of our great founders from David McCullough, who was in Philadelphia just days after 9-11, a pretty big historical day and memory for all of us who were alive then. And here is McCullough talking about the Constitution and language and words. There are 4,543 words in the Constitution. It's one of the world's shortest. Words matter to McCullough. One of the historians has said that the Constitution was the crowning work of the American Revolution. It was indeed, but keep in mind, it's not a crown of gold and jewels. It's a crown of words on paper. Words matter. What we say, what we profess to believe as expressed in words matter not just at the moment, but possibly for a very long time to come. The pen is, is a sword. The pen can be a weapon, but the pen can also be a magic wand. And when you think of what these relatively few people did in very little time, three months, meeting in that room with the windows closed, because they don't want word to get out, sentries at the windows to keep people from coming up and listening. In that heat of Philadelphia and humidity in the summer, this is punishment. But they're working in secret not to keep anybody from knowing, but to keep the politicians and the ambitious statesmen, if you will, if you prefer, who are in that room from grandstanding, from saying things for effect for saying things for popularity or to make an impression back home. Not their business. Their business is to hammer out a document that will stand the test of time. And that was asking a great deal of those people. Three months away from home, three months away from their work, three months uh, of very hard, concentrated effort under difficult circumstances, calling upon their patriotism, not the flag-waving patriotism, chest-beating kind, but the kind of getting down to do serious, difficult work in a very serious, worrisome time. Not unlike the time we are involved with ourselves today. There's a lot of similarity. But those people saw this as our chance to do it right. We're going to do it. Let's do it right. 
So what did the founders really accomplish, and why does it matter to all of us now? What they worked out, as I hope all of you know, is the basic structure of our government. And that's easy to say, and it's easy to say, oh yes, I know that. The bicameral legislature, the chief executive, and the judiciary. What they were really working out is a national government. A national government with power. Which is the very issue that troubles so many people today. So, is all of this relevant to the world we live in? It certainly is, every day. Should you understand it? Should you think about it? Absolutely, all the time. We can never know enough about the Founding Fathers as they've come to be known. Never know enough. And we're learning more all the time. It isn't an old story that's been just talked to death. And it is, again, infinitely compelling because of its human frailties and human, human soaring. Here's McCullough talking about mistakes people make when looking back in time. He spoke here about the Articles of Confederation. One of the mistakes people make very often is that they read about a success, an accomplishment that improves an old problem, that dispenses with what was inadequate before. And they think it was a perfect job, therefore, and that what was there before was inadequate and a failure. Now, there is a great deal to be said for that point of view, but it's almost always not quite complete. The Articles of Confederation were weak. They didn't have an executive to run the country. Taxing power wasn't there. Power to to control uh, uh, diplomatic negotiations for the whole country wasn't there, on and on. But the Articles of Confederation, as weak as it was, got us through eight and a half years of the Revolutionary War, longest war in our history except for Vietnam, the most bloody war in our history on a per capita basis except for the Civil War. People forget that. And just because they wore funny clothes and walked around with wigs on and so forth doesn't mean that they weren't human beings suffering all the horrors of war. It isn't just the number of people who are killed, it's all the people who have been wounded and stricken with disease and taken away from their families for years at a time on terrible food and no pay. All somehow or other the Articles of Confederation and that government that was in Philadelphia managed to do it. And by the way, remember we told a remarkable story about Benjamin Franklin and his son and the war inside Franklin's home. Ben Franklin sided with the Patriots. The son, the governor of New Jersey, sided with the Crown. He was in solitary confinement for two years, and when the war ended, he felt no home here in the United States was possible and exiled to London. And so the war had great consequences, and a lot of the founders, they fought in this war, and they suffered the casualties and all the horrors of war. McCullough continues the story of this country and the Articles of Confederation and things that happened while we were governed under that document. Ironically, the same summer, this tumultuous, troubled summer, 
1787, under the Articles of Confederation was passed the Northwest Ordinance. Think about this. This is what I say when we got to think. The Northwest Ordinance created a new part of the country for the future's development. Five states would result from it. Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. A territory bigger than the entire nation of France. Center of the Great Lakes. One of the most valuable, most American places on the map. And they specified there would be no slavery. Before we even had a constitution, no slavery in those states. And that there would be public education, neither of which would wind up in the constitution. So they were ahead of the constitution in that respect. So to just dismiss the Articles of Confederation as having been uh, largely a, a failure is to not understand what really happened. The fact that there was no slavery in those states would change our whole history. And of course, it was admirable in the extreme. The fact that they saw that education was essential to our whole system, to its success, and did something about it, didn't just talk about it. Jefferson said, any nation that expects to be ignorant and free expects what never, never was and never will be. But there's nothing in the Constitution about that. And indeed, I attended uh, law school at the University of Virginia, and this was Thomas Jefferson's public school, public college, to the state. So no one understood the commitment to education more and the importance of an educated civil society. How can we vote if we don't know what we're voting about or arguing about? And when we come back, we continue with this storytelling from David McCullough. And folks, it doesn't get better than this, and that's what we do here on this show, bring you the best minds, the very best minds, but also folks who know how to turn all of these facts, all of these dates into real-life, living, breathing history. And that's the problem with the way so much history is taught in this country. It's facts, it's data, it's chronology. And the human beings, flaws and all, are stripped out of the equation. We're putting those human beings right back in the center. David McCullough, master storyteller. The story of America, the story of our Constitution, brought to us by the folks at the Stetson Family Office, celebrating Constitution Week here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our free, free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, more with David McCullough here on Our American Stories.
And we continue our celebration of Constitution Week. And there's no better way to do it than to do it with America's premier historian, master storyteller, author of 1776, and John Adams, and that's David McCullough. And we continue with this conversation that he had back in 2001, right after 9-11, in Philadelphia. It wasn't a perfect document, the Constitution. It turns out it avoided a big issue, a really big one, one that is known as America's original sin, slavery. The Constitution isn't a success entirely. Um, Martin Luther King put it very well in his famous speech here on the Mall, that it was a promissory note because it ducked, it avoided the issue of slavery, the issue with the ultimate lead into the worst calamity in the history of our country, the Civil War. 600,000 people died because of slavery in that war. 600,000 people. And that's not counting all the people that went home with one arm or no legs. We are accountable for what we do. History shows that. And we are capable of rising up out of terrible, troubled times and doing something, something thrilling that is a symbol of affirmation. And the Constitution is that. Even before the amendments were added, the Bill of Rights, even before the 14th Amendment was finally added, ending slavery. We keep fixing it. Now, whether the Constitution should be taken literally or should be judged by the temper and the moment and the problems of the moment by the by the jurists is continuing issue. The great effort was to find a middle way. That's what they were struggling for in that hot room with the windows closed, to find the middle way together. And they succeeded in doing it. And they might, it might not have gone that way. That's the other thing. It didn't have, history is never on a track. We're often taught this, follow this, follow that, follow that. You've got to memorize it. It'll be on the test on Wednesday. And therefore, it had to come out that way. It never had to come out any one way or another. And what they achieved at Philadelphia was like nothing else that had ever been achieved. Words on paper, a constitution on paper, a written constitution. Still the law of the land, still part of who we are and what we believe. And indeed it is, and it is the oldest constitution in the world, something every student, every parent in this country should know. He implores here, David McCullough does, folks to go to Philly and think about those men in their times. These were serious guys doing serious, important things. I think that everybody should go to Philadelphia at some point in the course of life and go into that room and think about what was done there. Think about those human beings and their frailties. 
Some of them got in a lot of trouble later on, personally or professionally. Some of them peaked, as we would say then. But while they were there, they were using the best ability they had. They were thinking. They were trying to put what they felt and believed on paper in words. This wasn't a sound bite opportunity to be practiced by sound bite brains. These were serious people. Now, most of them, over half of them, were under 40 years old. Don't think of them as wise old founding fathers. Some of them were, like Franklin. Most of them were quite young. But they'd had the experience of the war, which did not make them anything but versed, steeped in the realities of tragedy and accomplishment and courage and faith. Tragedy, accomplishment, courage, and faith. And it was, well, it was all over that room. Here is David McCullough's final point about these men, not just who they were, not just what they wrote, because they wrote the Federalist Papers, folks, and as important a series of letters, essays that have ever been written in American history, but most important, what they were reading throughout their lives. Those people are all teaching us something. And they're asking us to get to know them better and to get to know what they went through to achieve what they did in difficult times. Now, it's very important that we know what they wrote. But I want to I stress one more thing. It's very important that we know also what they read. Because we are what we read. What were Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, John Adams, Jefferson, what were they reading when they were students? What were they reading through life? From which writers, which words were they taking inspiration? One of them we know was Alexander Pope, the great English poet, and his elegy, his, uh, elegy a man. Act well your part there all the honor lies. They all knew it. They all quoted it. What's that mean? Act well your part. History, luck, fate, God, choose how you wish to say it, has cast you in a role. Play it the best you can. Why? For money? No. For power? No. Celebrity? No. Honor. We don't hear much about honor these days. Act well your part, there all the honor lies. Now that doesn't mean they always were able to do that, but they were striving for that objective. And if you understand that, you can understand who they were and why they were the way they were a great deal more, more succinctly. Act well your part, there all the honor lies. Words these guys live by, folks. And words mattered, as David McCullough pointed out, 4,543 words that changed the world, an exercise in self-governance nobody, nobody could have thought would last as long as it lasted. And we are what we read. 
What a thing to say and what a thing to remember. And so this week, we're making it easy for you. You don't have to read this stuff. You can listen. You can listen to our great writers, our great thinkers, all week long. Dr. Larry Arn. You're going to hear Justice Scalia, David McCullough, Jeffrey Rosen, Chuck Stetson. All of this is available on our website, all of it via podcast and all the time and for free. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. All this week, celebrating the Constitution. And as always, all of this is brought to us by the Stetson Family Office. And the Stetson Family Office is dedicated to constitutional literacy and bringing the Constitution to life in schools, home schools, charter schools, anywhere people gather and want to learn. Go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. This is Our American Story, the story of the Constitution, the story of America and its founding here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to understand the Constitution, to understand the Declaration of Independence, well, George Washington said it best, without Thomas Paine's common sense, there's no revolution. If there's no revolution, there's no Declaration of Independence, and there's no Constitution, there's none of it. And Paine wrote Common Sense in January of 1776, and by April, it had sold 120,000 copies And back then, there were only 3 million or so Americans. So imagine what kind of a bestseller that was and how many books he would have sold today with 300 million-plus Americans. So let's dig right into this remarkable piece of writing, this pamphlet. Payne started off with a sort of a disclaimer. Let's take a listen. Perhaps the sentiments contained in the following pages are not yet sufficiently fashionable to procure them general favor. A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right, and raises at first a formidable outcry in defense of custom. But the tumult soon subsides. Time makes more converts than reason. As a long and violent abuse of power is generally the means of calling the right of it in question, and in matters too which might never have been thought of, had not the sufferers been aggravated into the inquiry, and, as the King of England hath undertaken in his own right to support the Parliament in what he calls theirs, and as the good people of this country are grievously oppressed by the combination, they have an undoubted privilege to inquire into the pretensions of both, and equally to reject the usurpation of either. In the following sheets, 
the author hath studiously avoided everything which is personal among ourselves. Compliments as well as censure to individuals make no part thereof. The wise and the worthy need not the triumph of a pamphlet, and those whose sentiments are injudicious or unfriendly will cease of themselves, unless too much pains are bestowed upon their conversion. Here's Payne now talking down loyalists to the crown. The prejudice of Englishmen in favor of their own government of king, lords, and commons arises as much or more from national pride than reason. Individuals are undoubtedly safer in England than in some other countries, but the will of the king is as much the law of the land in Britain as in France, with this difference, that instead of proceeding directly from his mouth, it is handed to the people under the more formidable shape of an act of Parliament, for the fate of Charles I hath only made kings more subtle, not more just. Wherefore, laying aside all national pride and prejudice in favor of modes and forms, the plain truth is that it is wholly owing to the constitution of the people, and not to the constitution of the government, that the crown is not as oppressive in England as in Turkey. An inquiry into the constitutional errors in the English form of government is at this time highly necessary, for as we are never in proper condition of doing justice to others while we continue under the influence of some leading partiality, so neither are we capable of doing it to ourselves while we remain fettered by an obstinate prejudice, and as a man who is attached to a prostitute is unfitted to choose or judge a wife, so any prepossession in favor of a rotten constitution of government will disable us from discerning a good one. And what writing, and here he is now, Thomas Paine in Common Sense, talking down the entire notion of monarchy. In the early ages of the world, according to the scripture chronology, there were no kings, the consequence of which was there were no wars. It is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion. Holland, without a king, hath enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in Europe. Antiquity favors the same remark, for the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs have a happy something in them which vanishes away when we come to the history of Jewish royalty. Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings, and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to the worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Here thou is pain rallying the troops and the cause of revolution. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. 
Now is the seed-time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fracture now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree, and posterity read it in full-grown characters. And here Paine continues to rally the American people. O ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. O oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum from mankind. And here Thomas Paine makes the case for independence. However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence, some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, for some other powers, not engaged in the quarrel, to step in as mediators, and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on for ever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we profess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must, in the eye of foreign nations, be considered as rebels. The present is somewhat dangerous to their peace for men to be in arms under the name of subjects. We, on the spot, can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition towards them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so, until, by an independence, we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, 
and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. And what words? They still resonate today, folks, all these centuries later. And the fights we have in this country are very similar. They're actually very, very similar. Who decides who pays sovereignty, the individual and the state, and power in the end? Thomas Paine, Common Sense, and we play that for you because without it, as George Washington reminded people, there would be no Constitution. We're celebrating Constitution Week all week this year. In 1787, our founders signed the Constitution in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this week, we are doing everything we can to remind folks of those times. And thank you to the Stetson Family Office for sponsoring this week of storytelling. And all week long, well, all week long, you're getting a lesson from the very best in the business, a storytelling from the very best in this world. And constitutioncurriculum.org, www.constitutioncurriculum.org is where you can go to find essentials in education and Stetson Family Office materials for homeschoolers, for public schools, for the family, the very best educational materials for teaching our nation's constitutional literacy here on Our American Stories, the story of the American Constitution. Constitution.